when he took it from one device to another one. Now, when you read the manual for the Chi Discus at that time, what he actually told the tester to do was to clean the equipment at the end of, at the end of his testing. Well, if somebody starts in the morning and they work to the evening, they've not finished their testing if they move from one piece of equipment to another. So I'm always slightly hesitant to criticise manufacturers too much if the procedures that a tester has used are either not in accordance with what the manufacturer has used or could be influenced by other conditions that would not be present in the manufacturer's installation in the type test room. Now, I'm not a manufacturer, so I'm not defending manufacturers. I'm, I'm just trying to relate to sometimes it's not always a black and white situation that somebody is right and wrong. There are sometimes detection levels of equipment can be different. Um, you know, and the worst thing for me is when people make claims, when me, people make claims for compliance with certain standards, and th and then quite obviously they're not they're not achieving them. Now that does two things. One, it weakens the confidence in the standard that they're claiming compliance with because people start to question whether that's wrong or they're wrong. And then you get the situation where you're left with a client who's got a, a manufactured product that tells you it has to perform to this level and you're saying it doesn't. And they're saying, well, how do I prove that back to the manufacturer? So it, it, it's not an easy situation. And I hope that whatever work I leave you doing can at least give people an opportunity to make challenges that people will work together to try and um, find an end result to and not set up walls, because I think that's the problem. If you challenge a manufacturer, the wall goes up immediately and you don't get anywhere. I actually wasted a whole week of my life contacting every single manufacturer of wood waste extraction equipment in the UK, asking them on behalf of iLevy um, what evidence they had or what documentation they had around their filters. Um, some didn't reply. Those that didn't reply, I rang them up and explained again why I needed it. And in the end, most of them did communicate with me on, on some level or other. And nobody was able to provide me with what I would have regarded as um, good evidence for, for what what they were doing or what they were saying about their equipment. Um, those that did provide evidence, you know, when I tracked it down and I looked at what they were giving me and the standards that they were quoting, they were completely inappropriate. There's no way that they had tested their filters to that. You know, they may they were just picking numbers up off the internet. That's that's the honest truth. There's a huge amount of um, unscrupulousness within our industry where people will say what somebody wants to hear. And if they're asked to quote what standard they're working to, you know, my professional opinion is 95% of them make it up and the other 5% say no idea. Uh, but when you actually spend time looking at the documentation, tracing it back, they're quoting standards that don't exist. They're quoting standards that you cannot possibly use for this kind of equipment. Um, and that the whole industry needs a huge shake up and it has to start with the fabric um, or the filter media um, and testing that is appropriate for the kind of systems they're fitted to. And then that can evolve, in, evolve into the kind of testing that you do on site and the kind of guidance that we all want. But in the meantime, direct reading instruments have a role to play. What I would say is just going back to something Adrian mentioned earlier, and it's commissioning reports. So I yeah. think that's the point at which we need to be defining a level that we say, well, we've tested this. We're happy with the system at this level at the filter. This is what we get today. That's when you benchmark it and say, you know, that. so it goes back to what you're saying earlier, Jane, which I wasn't totally disagreeing with, was that there is a place, yeah. but I think we have to be very careful in defining it. And this is my, my issue that there's just, we're seeing a lot of figures put down on reports that are not related to anything. And I think in the absence of any of these guidance notes or manufacturers provided information, I think it's probably back to us to, to introduce this figure with a definition within the commissioning or initial inspection and say, right, this is what we use going forward. And here's why we're using this figure. 
um, you know, with a reasoned argument for, for what we're putting forward there. Um, it'd be great to hear, as Bill said earlier, it'd be great to hear from some of the others on the call today, uh, particularly if we've got any manufacturers and, and their view and, and, and what they do. I've done quite a bit of type testing in my years for manufacturers and I think the thing that, that saddens me the most is that I would say 90% of all the cases, they never ever read the report I gave them. They never read it. They never asked any questions about it. I always used to say to them afterwards, I've just given you a 48 page report. That's a typical report for a, a BSEM 14175 cupboard, 48 pages. And I said, I've just given you a 48 page report. Do you have any questions? And nearly always, they always ask the same thing. Do I get a certificate that says it passed? As soon as they get that certificate, that's like the golden wand. They, they, they don't ask anything else. And I had an incident recently and um, I was asked to look at some BSEM 14175 type test reports. And when I started reading the reports, I was so shocked that this report that, that I had, the velocity tests at the beginning were done on a cupboard that was 1200 wide. And the containment tests, which was at the back end of the report, was on a cupboard that was 1500 wide. And it was for one cupboard. And I, I rang the manufacturer and I said, you report you've got velocity tests on a 1200 cupboard and you've got containment tests on a 1500 cupboard why is that and they said i don't know are you sure and i said well look i've worked it back all the containment factors all the volume flows definitely two different cupboards when he rang up this test house that had done this test for him i don't know eight or ten years ago they said to him that they tested two cupboards at his establishment and when they put all the results in a folder They'd, they'd taken the velocity results and they'd, they'd, they'd mixed the two up. Now, this this type test report had supposedly been circulating for eight years and nobody had noticed it. So going back to what Jane was saying, uh, I can I can really understand it. The manufacturers do not always understand the technically well, the technical implications of the reports. They're interested in the commercial advantages that the report gives them. So they will often take the word of the test house and they will just use it. They won't understand whether it complies with the standard. All they will know is they've got a certificate that says it does. So Jane made a really good point. Manufacturers are not always trying to mislead. Many of them don't really understand what's needed. And I think if we can get manufacturers a bit more on board and say that we're not out to try and defeat them or work against them, it would help us and them if we had some sort of common unity that allowed us all to operate within a given framework and be giving out good advice. It would suit the manufacturers, it would suit the test houses, and both of those would in turn suit the end client because you would be able to come up with some of the numbers that Mark is trying to achieve. We would be able to come up with some numbers. Can you hear me? Sorry. No, you can carry on, Catherine. I was just going to jump in there and say that um, with a with an occupational hygiene hat on, if we were working with a client um, and we were giving them advice and good practice, particularly if they had hazards that should be ALARP, uh, we would recommend to them that they purchase their own um, monitoring equipment and that they keep records of the date of the filter change and then the test results from their direct readings at the filter on a regular basis and then when we went to do the LEV test we would be able to see the logbook and over time you can then see a pattern. Filters changed on this date, the reading starts to get affected by this time and then the filters changed again and over time you start to build up um, a good picture of how that filter performs against your production, um, you, you know, the amount of production that you do. And if your production increases, you can then look at how your readings change. That's obviously ideal world, but 
particularly with blue chip clients or big clients that you know should be able to invest in this type of work I do think it's something that they should be doing in-house and as an LEV tester it'd be really nice if we went along and saw logbooks that gave us that type of information. It'd just nice if we saw logbooks Catherine. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> What I was going to say is um, there's a big problem in the industry, in all industries, um, particularly education, where they're saturated with existing recirculating units and the manufacturers would have long washed their hands of, tho of those and, and not care about them. And most of these have never had the doors off in an LEV test. And I'm, I know we can argue that's not a, a thorough examination test, but when you get there to get the doors off, the clean side is packed full of wood dust. You know, they're fails. We've got a real big problem with this. And this goes back to what Kenneth says. We need some standards. We need LEV testers particularly um, to look a bit more closely at these. One of the things, Catherine, that, that I've come across quite commonly is that particularly in education, that, that they're focused on teaching. And their teaching is 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 what's important, getting through the curriculum and getting things done. So they tend to use advisors to be steering them or they follow certain codes of practice. Now, in education, we have, um, I would say, 95 percent of all the UK education establishments are influenced by the uh, the work of CLEAPS. CLEAPS give at work to DIY, uh, sorry, to um, uh, DT shops, they give laboratories. They give um, metal workshops. All that advice is generated through CLEAPS. CLEAPS give them documentation on good procedures, good practices, what they should be looking for. So perhaps we could try and implement some of the work that CLEAPS does, because I know CLEAPS are open to um, communicating more now. That, that there is a different regime in CLEAPS to what they used to be. In the, in the 70s and 80s, they were very insular. That they want, that they felt that all manufacturers or testers was their sole objective was to charge the school a lot of money for little or poor advice. So they were very protective of them. But there is definitely a new regime at Cleaps now, and they are far more open to listen. But I'm not saying they're going to change everything overnight. But they are, they are acknowledging that that there are other people outside of Cleaps that might be able to help them. Um, I went on a course of Cleaps last week a fume cover testing course just so I could try and get an understanding of how they teach and what I came away with was it's very very 60s and 70s even the course they're teaching now it's very 60s and 70s and when you think of all the technology and all the information all the advice that's available to clear outside um, that they could do so much more. They could do so much more for themselves than the, the people that they support, the, the schools. So what I hope may happen is that people like iLevy will try and engage more with CLEAPS and just try and find some common ground because I know there's some there's some old history with with, with CLEAPS and, and how they've been, but I, I, I definitely feel that they've got a slightly different approach and I, for one, would like to try and see if we can work with them because if we can influence CLEAPS they will influence the education people and that market then will be uh, uh, improved for everybody. Can I ask the question has anyone ever approached a um, manufacturer the recirculating system and ask the question how they propose to measure the gases and uh, things that could pass through the, the particulate filler. Has anyone asked the question? I, I raised that question with a manufacturer on LinkedIn the other week, Craig, and uh, they didn't understand the question. They didn't think that any gases came through. Um, they didn't quite put it as simple as that. The, the answer is a lot more uh, aggressive. Hey, I wasted a week of my life, as I said earlier, a whole week, Monday to Friday, all day long, doing nothing but 
contacting manufacturers of recirculatory LEV of all types to ask them about their filters, how they recommended they were tested, how efficient they were, how effective they were, how do they know that, what testing's been done, what data sheets can they provide, what technical information have they got. Um, and I provided evidence I was asking on behalf of iLevy and the HSE for a project that we were doing into it. Um, and, you know, 95% of them tell big fat porkies and 5% of them don't even understand the question. You know, those that do understand the question think, oh, I'm being asked for a technical document. Uh, I'll make something up. Um, I went to the, the people that actually make the fabric, the people who import the fabric um, and other types of media. You know, it was, I say it was a waste of a week. It, it was an informative week because it just confirmed my prejudices that there is a huge hole in the technical data that is available to us. And that's where we need to start. We need to get that sorted first. I would also like to reflect on what uh, Melvin and Jane said in the past regarding the real time equipment and assessing the efficiency of the filters. I think um, also HSC admit the fact that, for example, from my experience, when I've been looking to the efficiency of, efficiency of the untorch extraction system, there is a little margin when the, the fumes are not always fully captured and that, that will depend on the position of welding um, and other aspects. So what happens then, there is a certain amount of contaminant that is actually getting airborne and that's obviously going to be mixed with the general atmosphere. So being in a position of using real time monitors, how are we how where are we placing ourselves in a, in a position to actually determine the efficiency of the filter taking into consideration the airborne contaminants. So where is that proportion of where the contaminant is actually coming from the source and not rather than filter? So as Melvin said in, in, in the past, as long as we've got a, a fixed number, I think, and as long as we've got a method of actually testing the, the filter like they do with the biosafety cabinets, testing the, the efficiency of the HEPA filters outside of the unit, I don't think we'll we'll find ourselves in a comfortable position to be 100% certain uh, to say yes, the filter is actually effective or not. Just just to come in on that, the, the quite often it, it it's it's difficult to determine whether the filter is letting by or whether it's the seal of the filter that's letting by, because. If you call a manufacturer and say the filter is letting by, they'll they'll say to you, does it have an effective seal? And you have to try and do a seal test. Now, I know they use percolethylene in, um, uh, in G9, in the CLEAPS G9, to do a seal test. But sometimes it's not always it's not always easy to determine whether it's the seal that's letting it through or the filter. So I don't know. I, I just feel slightly anxious that you may not get an exact answer from a manufacturer, yes or no. But Jane is right. Most manufacturers bundle together as many BS and EN numbers as they can find that they think their equipment complies with and they put that into their literature. And in many instances, they've not even they've not even read them to see whether they do. But it's a marketing tool. People read it. I mean, I, I, I had one recently where a, a manufacturer put on the market a, a new nano chamber and it was a, a, a device that was claimed to be used for uh, nanomaterials and it was for all intents and purposes, it was a class two microbiological safety cabinet, but it had an air curtain that ran down the front of the cabinet. But then they listed in there that this cabinet exceeded all the requirements of EM14175. Now, when I asked them the questions, they wrote back and nine questions they wrote back and said to everyone no we didn't test it for that but they said it exceeded the requirements of it now em14175 has no relevance to what this equipment was designed for but what it does do it attracts someone's attention because em14175 is an established standard people see the number and they get comfort from thinking that this device is superior to what is already known to be a very good testing standard so Jane is right, you know, manufacturers do have to try and step up to the plate, not just give out advice, but give out advice that can be backed up. 
If I can just come back in there, I mentioned earlier the Industry and Regu Regulatory Forum on LEV. Um, something which is coming out of the last meeting that was had is there's got the workshops, HSE workshops in October. And it'll cover three themes, uh, filter and device standards, commissioning and thorough examination and testing and monitoring and alarms. And basically, they have to be involving um, people from the LEV manufacturers, LEV test and commissioning engineers, and the filter manufacturers and duty holders, and getting them to do, a, it'll be a full day workshop, and the one is a size, the filter and device standards, uh, which would be what works well, what doesn't, where are the gaps, that sort of thing. Uh, monitoring alarms, what is the most practical monitoring, is it's very practical and it's got these in. So hopefully we'll be getting a lot more feedback from that as well later in the year. Dean, can I ask what forum was that on, please? It's the Industry and Regulatory Forum on LEV. Um, ILEV initiated it and HSE have pretty much taken over it, but that involves uh, people such as uh, BOHS, let me just make sure I get the right one, BOHS, IOSH, uh, Safed, Visa, Anita, UCAS, FETA, uh, Shapa, obviously the HSE. So it, there's, there's quite a forum across across the industry involved with that. Oh, and the, and the unions involved as well, Unite. Dean, that's the same forum that came up with the or, or helped to develop the training matrix, I think, isn't it? Yep, that's where, where that came from. Um, and Adrian's nodding his head. Uh, it's it's still being developed because there's changes going on. And at the moment, Melvin is oh, Melvin is involved um, with the next section of it on fume cupboards, recirculating fume cupboards uh, and that side of it. And um, once that um, committee is finished its deliberations, we'll feed back that into the competency matrix and that will become part of that as well. I think one of the things that um, I hope we might achieve is to try and engage more with, with manufacturers and users <clears throat> so that we can perhaps assist them in understanding standards. I mean, there are some things written in standards that people just take for granted. Uh, it, 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 there's a new standard being drafted for recirculation filtration fume cupboards. And in that standard, they ask you to put a challenge of 200 ppm of IPA inside the cabinet and test for 1% of an OE airway outside. And they use 16 sensors across the top of the filter to determine whether there is any leakage. And yet, on that same cabinet, in that same standard, they say, if you have a device that's used to monitor that particular filter, i.e. a sensor, a vapor sensor, uh, when you test the vapor sensor, you only use two ppm of IPA. Now, for me, if this is the device that's going to be monitoring that filter, what are they relying on? They use a challenge of 200 ppm when they do the type test, and yet they're saying when you do the field test, Provided you're doing it in 2 ppm and you're getting the value, that's good enough. Well, if 2 ppm is good enough for the sensor in the field, for me, why don't they use 2 ppm in the type test? It, it, it's, it's getting to understand what these standards mean, because just having a monitor on something doesn't mean to say you're safe. Does that monitor actually do anything credible for you in, in assuring you that that filter is performing its role? If it doesn't, take the thing off. Why have it? For me, a monitor serves a purpose. It alerts somebody if there's a problem <clears throat> or indicates that a condition is a control condition is being maintained. If you're allowing monitors and sensors to work at levels lower than what you tested them at for, for performance of the equipment, why do you have it? What is the need for it? We need some sort of common sense in what people read in standards. And if they don't achieve it, we should be saying so and ask for them to be removed. Um, if, if I may, it, it's a bit different to recirculation, filtration, fume covers, but um, 
there's shortly due to be a, a, a standard being issued for public comment, and it's a standard on um, articulated X-rectums, which you all use in some shape or form or test. Um, I would like anyone who's interested to comment on that to drop me a line because I'm going to try and see if I can circulate that to you. The standard is called PREN16589 and it's the standard that, that covers laboratory articulated X-rect arms which are, are more or less exactly the same as what you see in, in welding environments and they are abducted systems, recirculated systems and that's due to come out for comment. And as Adrian has said, and Dean has said, we need people other than the same faces and voices giving some opinions. And I'm happy to take your opinions back to the BSI panel um, so that they're getting a, a broader view of some of these standards. For me, the, the guys that are given these standards to use, they're not getting enough say in what these standards contain. So I would hope that now, people will make comments so we can try and get this into the standards before they're issued for use. Can I just bring it back to the original measurement that we're discussing? And I think we're all in agreement there is a place for the, the measurements, but I think can we just agree that if we're defining it on an LEV report, that we call it something like baseline figure? Um, you know, if, you, if you're doing an air um, a reading at the filter, so that we can see going back through the history of the reports, you know, what what it was and who took it and why it, why it took. Is there anything we can we can add? Do you think on an LEV report that defines that and and pinpoints that as the the initial figure, in the absence of a commissioning report, if you're adding it into a routine inspection, for example? Um, just so we're all trying to get a little bit of consistency with these these readings. I think I would only call it a baseline figure if I was taking the test um, when the filter was reasonably new, because if you go to an LEV system and you do a test and you've no idea how old the filter is or um, any issues they've had with it, then I don't. It's I think there needs to be some context put in the report about when you're taking the reading and the conditions under when you're taking it. But I think if I was to call it a baseline, I would want to know that it was just after a filter change. Would it not be more practical to do that near the end of the life of the filter when you know it's at its worst? Or at that point of degradation where you it's it needs replacing so if it was a at that level you know yeah we're past it rather than a new as soon as you put that new filter in that's at its premium uh, efficiency it's well until it's coated obviously but um i think if we're doing something like that it when it's first installed it's not the time to, to do that base test it would be not before the filter has failed, but at a time when it it has been well used, shall we say. So I think we're, what we're talking about is adding context to this figure. So we need to have some sort of context rather than just having a figure in a report. It needs a bit of context with the filter condition, what was going on. And I think that's what, you know, certainly I'd like to see a little bit more of in some of these reports. So, so they have got a bit more meaning than just a, a figure at a point in time. Yeah, I think even if you even if you put that you don't know, uh, it's better than just leaving a figure with no context at all. Um, I think doing a test when the filter's been changed is at least telling it that the filter is um, efficient and and doing the job it's supposed to do. I think having yeah. a reading when the filter is um, really dirty or old is great as well because you can also see. Um, and back to that idea of kind of trying to get a pattern. I, ideally, you would have a pattern throughout the filter's life of of the breakthrough. Um, but that isn't always possible. So if we're just going once a year and we just have one reading um, to take, then um, it's only really useful for anybody else reading that report if there is some context to that figure. 
That's context is what there. we need. You know, Catherine, context is what we need for virtually everything on the report. You know, ideally, there'll be a commissioning report that gives you some really good hard evidence and um, truthful stuff that you can trace back regarding the, the standard of the filter and how it should be performing. And then there should be a commissioning report that gives you some readings and tells you what the concentration was, but also tells you that commissioning was done, you know, the day after the plant was installed, or they've waited a month for the filters to develop um, an effective filtration coat. Um, you know, whatever numbers you've got on your report, they, they need context. Um, and you are supposed to carry out an LEV test when you change the filters to prove the effectiveness of your repairs. So, you know, you, you should be able to demonstrate to your client the before and after that the new filters has made. Um, and that's that's really worthwhile, not just to justify the fact that you're charging them for changing the filters, but for them to understand, you know, yes, the filters do play a, a crucial role. Um, a lot of this is about illustrating things and communicating them to the end user and the client so that they appreciate the importance of keeping their kit in good, clean, effective condition. Because a lot of them just sit, it sits in the corner and it eats dust. I don't know where they think it goes because, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if it was you, Catherine, or somebody else who was talking about, you know, going to a school and opening the doors and, you know, having to, I think it, you know, you have to lever off the doors sometimes. They're so so jammed shut and caked up with stuff. Um, we need to concentrate very much on communicating how important it is to the client and the end user and ensuring that they know what to look for and what to check and how important it is that it's working effectively. And we've, we've gone off talking about um, the controls and the alarms that could be fitted. So, you know, whilst it's handy if you've got a client who can invest in the equipment to regularly check, um, surely it's better for them to spend £100 or so and have some gauges fitted, um, along with some posters that explain what those gauges mean and a little bit of staff training so that when the concentration or the intensity of use changes or the personnel change, um, it's very clearly communicated to people whether or not that LEV is still functioning. Um, it's like anything, like any problem, there it needs a mixture of solutions to be implemented, all, all with equal weight, I think, um, to enable the end user, the, the worker, to be fully protected. But controls and alarms have um, a really big part to play in this, and they're not expensive. Could I just ask um, if Louise is able to give us any feedback on the um, dust monitor uh, that she spoke about, uh, I think, in, a, in one of the messages? Uh, it seemed like quite a um, cheap device compared to the uh, Casella or the dust tracks. Um, so I just wondered how that had been faring in the field. It actually fares really well and it comes in useful because it's got such big figures if the filters are failed, like in the thousands, you say you show the client and they're like, oh God, yeah, we've got to do something about it now. I mean, you take the doors off and show them all the dust and say, well, that shouldn't be their only clean side. They don't seem to grasp that it's bad for their health. But if you show them, you know, well, you're reading 10,000 part per million coming out there, you really have got a problem. They seem to panic with that with that figure so I tend to give the piece of kit to the client and say pop that on your outlet and just see what it's doing and it, it does work a treat it's a really useful piece of kit and I only use it as an as an indicative figure um but more really to scare them into doing something about it and changing the filters So is it something that you leave with the client or is it just is it a piece of equipment you use and take with you to, to your LEV tests? I use it as part of, as part of an LEV assessment, um, particularly in schools, um, particularly in new builds, I should say, where heat retainment is quite important. You have all these underbench um, dust filters in schools serving woodworking processes like fret saws and disanders. And they fail in 12 months they're poorly made the filtration isn't the right 
um, grade or standard and nobody takes the doors off to check. So you go in for your LEV test and it's an absolute mess. And with schools, they've got no money, they've got no inkling of what it's doing to their health, they're not really interested. Um, and so if you go the next year, you find the same problem again. So I tend to use that tester to kind of scare them into compliance and say, look, you've got to change your filters. And then when they see those big figures, they generally find the money to do the maintenance that they should be doing in the first place. I, I, I would like to, to just touch on what Mark Armstrong has, has done in some of his reports I've noticed recently. Mark's introduced a clause that, that, that talks about operator training and operator influence on the equipment. I think that would be a valuable thing to start getting in our text reports because um, I've noticed a few universities are now introducing standard training for their operatives. Even, even over short terms, where an operative before they can use a fume cupboard has to undergo basic training in which it's explained to them what the device does, how it protects them, things that they can do to, to challenge the performance. Uh, also, it, it, going on to what Joe was saying, it also explained about the controls and monitors that are there to assist them. So I think we, if, if we try to see if we can engage with some of these people to help influence them to uh, improve training and, and emphasise how important training is, particularly with recirculation filtration um, filters. If you look at the CLEAX guidance, um, they recommend anything from 95% efficient up to 99.9% efficient. That's quite a big margin uh, when somebody says, well, do I need it to be 99.9 or do I need it to be 95? CLEAPs qualify theirs by saying if you're using certain chemicals in certain quantities, 95 is okay. But others, you need 99. But often users are wheeled into a, a, a room, given the device and saying, here's your fume cupboard, here's your class, carry on. They're not, they're not always given the time to introduce them to the equipment for them to understand how they interact with it. So... Again, I think it's it, it's it's for us to try and see whether we can engage a bit more with them to see if we can influence them. Well, I think equally, I think you're right on the training there, Melvin, but I think equally that can apply to LEV testers too. I mean, testing filters isn't really covered in that much detail in the P601. There isn't the opportunity to do, to do that much in a, in a week's training. So it almost needs its own training module training course itself i think personally i don't know what everybody else thinks see james already james that. already explained it that clear apps have taken a bit of a shortcut with theirs they've, they've decided that perhaps they, they they should not really be telling schools to test the filters and change them they should use this uh, calendar period of if it's in a uh, just a standard low level use lab four years is okay if it's in a lab where it's got slightly higher use, three years and change the filter. If it's in a prep room, two years and change the filter. A prep room where there's a lot of dispensing and uh, changing of chemicals before lessons and curriculum every year. So some people find a different way of trying to work with it. Rather than do the testing, they say, well, let's change it. Because, uh, you know, sometimes performing a test on a filter can be just as expensive as buying a new filter. Yeah, and it simplifies it for people as well. Yeah, it's, it, you know, the, the people that are, are most affected by it don't always have the power to change anything. It tends to be handled by others. You know, you get estate bursars who decide when and where something will be tested. I mean, there's a ridiculous situation in education where schools actually share anemometers between schools where you get a school will drive five miles across town with an anemometer that they're sharing with another school. And you think to yourself, crikey, these things are three or four hundred quid. Why don't they just buy one for themselves? The things that could happen in that four mile drive <laughs> would make you think, let's just buy one. But when you're looking down a, a list of costs and charges, when you tell somebody you're going to get somebody to come in and test their filter and it might cost you five or six hundred quid and they say, well, how much is a new filter? 500 quid, let's buy a new filter. Plug it in and we'll get a going with it. 
what they forget is you still need the new filter tested once it's in. It's not just buying that filter and fitting it. That filter needs to be validated to make sure that it is providing, you know, the performance that's necessary. The bursa doesn't know that. He buys a new filter. Then somebody says to him, oh, by the way, bursa, you now need to get the test company in to test it. And he says, crikey, I could have done that to start with. I might not have had to buy the new filter. You know, it, it looks as if the industry is trying to make money out of the school all the time. Sell them the filter, then tell them they need the test. So I think it's a, a lot of bridge building along the way. We've got to try and convince them that uh, our interests are, are pure, that we really, it's their safety. And okay, some of us still make a living out of doing it. Uh, that's not an argument. Um, but if we weren't there, who would do it for them? Melvin, sorry to interrupt. Um, Rob, you had your hand up. Do you want to? Come back and have your say. Sorry, just unmuting. Um, hi all. Uh, yeah, no, it was just when Louise mentioned about uh, separate training, it, it has been discussed with the BOHS. I think there is a possibility of uh, a specific filter course being developed, but very early stages, literally a, 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 an informal discussion. So <laughs> I think you just have to watch the space for that one. I think it was brought up on the BOHS conference stream that something like a P605, more of a technical training yeah, course, I think would be a great idea. I think yeah, that'd be that's important. exactly it. Yeah. So, that was all. Thanks, Rob. Um, I just want to chip in and say, you know, when, when we are looking at recirculating filters, um, handheld equipment it does have its limitations in that. It depends on where you're holding it. Um, when we when you're dispersing the air from a unit into a room, the air can travel quite some distance. So I think handheld literally is just an indicative number. We really should be doing static monitoring in the room, looking at where the dust or where the contaminant settles, where it falls out, where it travels, um, and almost doing like a heat map of the area to say if you stand this close to this filter, you could potentially have this exposure. But again, this this will come through on a, on a course or what I would like to see personally is a guidance. I mean, someone mentioned guidance document earlier, um, a simple guidance document on how to test. So we're all doing it to the same standard. And that way you can show your bursars, you can show your, your purse string holders. It's not me saying this. This is what the industry guidance says um, we should be doing. And if it is a case that we all stand there and hold a handheld meter, one meter from the unit, then so be it. If it is, we have to put four or five sampling pumps out on various radiuses or distances from the, the source, then that's what it is. But I think if we have that that's that guidance, then we have that level playing field and at least we can all work to the same standard. And then from that, we can swing what the results are. We can then you know develop other things. That, that guidance is one of the outcomes that will come from the committee that is looking at this with the HSC. Um, I do need to duck out because I've got something else that I should be doing. I just wanted to to give you the informal feedback that I've had from the HSC while we've been um, discussing this. And the first thing is they like handheld direct reading instruments. They like them. They think they have a place. They're not going to give you an actual value. They're going to give you an indicative value as to whether or not you need to take some further steps, get some more information and whether or not there is likely to be a problem or on the balance of probabilities, there isn't a problem. They're very keen on them. They're doing some work on very cheap handheld devices and more expensive ones and deciding whether or not the results that they get are repeatable um, and whether or not you need to spend two or three thousand pounds on an instrument or whether one of these cheaper instruments that's just a few hundred pounds um, is reliable. Now, the information they had the last time I spoke to them about this was that they have been doing a lot of research. They've been testing them. They will be publishing a report. Like all HSE reports, these take ages to to be drafted and approved and to be released. So I wouldn't expect to see it land in our inboxes anytime soon, but the work is underway. Some of the very cheap devices they've tested are not reliable. Um, some of the more expensive devices are very reliable. They're trying to decide exactly you know, where it is 
that you need to go in terms of reliability that is just enough. Um, as an organization, I provide all my engineers uh, with a Casella device that costs two or three thousand pounds. We use them on site at every source and um, at the recirculating filter. So we are able to build a, a map of sorts to the client. Um, it's not detailed, but it does indicate that the level of control at one particular machine, you know, is significantly less than at another. Um, it just adds another layer to the information that you're giving the customer. What, what I feel the HSC are going to end up recommending is that filters need to be labelled with their efficiency and what they're made of. That doesn't happen at the moment with most fabric filters. Um, equipment will need to be labelled with the date that the filter has been changed. These are cheap, simple changes that the HSC feel are proportionate to the risks. Um, and as an alternative to requiring people to change filters on a time-based factor rather than a usage-based factor, um, they may well end up recommending that the user's risk assessment can determine if they don't need to change them on that time-based factor. And that would be based on information feeding into their risk assessment, like some static sampling or some sampling with an appropriate handheld device. So I think they are going to come up with proportionate solutions for us. Um, and I know it's something that we all want, but it's not available to us now. And I think we have to wait a little bit longer until a bit more of this information is available before we can develop the guidance that, that everybody is after but it's good to talk about it. I've got to go as well now, and I just wanted to say I found it all really interesting and worthwhile. Uh, so thank you to everybody. And I just wanted to award the best coffee cup to Mark Armstrong. <laughs> Mark, can we just have a quick look at your coffee cup again? Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. I think if we wait for the HSE, it never happened. I, I, I have no faith in them at all um, in, in delivering. Um, they, they, they haven't really delivered for the LEV industry. They've done 258. Um, what else do they really do for, for the industry? You know, what have the Romans ever done for us? We've asked them for guidance. We've asked them for support on things. Yes, they turn up to the conference and yes, they do a talk. But they didn't really commit to anything. Um, and, and we're left as an industry trying to sort it out ourselves. So I think if we do want this guidance, it has to come from within the industry, from the volunteers um, to, to put it together. Whether that's an Ilevi thing, whether it's someone else, another organisation, whether it's LEV Central. I don't know. Um, you know, but that, that's where it will come from. My my experience of HSC over the last year is they're too busy with COVID, and then then there'd be something else, and there'd be something else, and there'd be something else. Not a high priority for them. I think at that until that time where we've got a clear guidance, I think what what Jane just mentioned is is um, an ethical approach. So um, obviously there is a number of different real time monitors, but I think. Um, if we would look into the options of trying to determine the respirable particles in the real-time monitors and using it next to the filter and then measuring, uh, let's say, three, four, five different locations away from the place where, where, where the works is happening, away from the filter, that will give a, a, a quite good um, understanding and a comparison of what's happening behind the the units filter and somewhere else in the workplace where we see this place being likely not contaminated. So I think from an ethical point of view, that's I think uh, the best that we can currently do. Uh, and I, I just say from an occupational hygiene perspective. I really do need to go, but I would be happy to put together the guidance that I give my own employees 
on how they should use direct reading instruments and where they should use them and how they should express those results with other members of the iLevy steering committee for their input on that and perhaps iLevy can put together um, a guidance document initially that we then circulate for review to other members of the industry for, the, for their input because um, I do appreciate the HSC take a very long time to do things and um, I'm now seven minutes late for my next meeting which is nothing new. It was lovely talking to you all and to see most of you and I look forward to seeing you all again. Bye bye. See you James. Bye. I will just add to that. Um, I'm glad Jane's going to do that. She wasn't at the iLevy meeting last week, uh, earlier this week rather. This is one of the things that iLevy are looking at doing, and I mentioned it earlier. Um, so that sort of thing is exactly what we're after. There's many people who want to be involved because we don't want to make it an iLevy thing. We want to make it an industry thing so that everybody buys into it and everybody can put their point of view in. So as I say, please do get involved because we're looking at doing that from iLevy and hopefully getting everybody involved too. If you haven't got my um, contact details, just go to iLevy at sibsi.co.uk. I think that's, that's the, and it will get back to me. Or to Adrian, uh, most people know Adrian's email um anyway that's good i think it's probably a good time to wrap the meeting up um but thanks so much everybody um yet again it's been really informative and uh i've taken quite a way a lot away from this um even though i couldn't participate for the first half <laughs> thanks for organizing louise thank you no worries thank you for for being here yeah Thank you, Louise. Thank you. Bye, all. Okay, then. Bye, all. See you.